Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this uh, NATO uh, strategic concept webinar we are organizing today. I have two distinguished uh, guests and um, specialists on this topic. We are going to be talking about the Madrid summit. As you know, NATO is having a, a major summit in Madrid, Spain this week. And uh, one of the highlights is going to be the strategic concept of NATO that will be announced. Uh, I have with me today uh, Professor Charles Kupchan. He's a senior fellow with Council on Foreign Relations, but he's also a professor at Georgetown University. And we have also Professor Mustafa Kibaroğlu. He's, a, he's with MEF University in Turkey. He's actually currently in Madrid. He's joining us from uh, Madrid. Um, so um, hopefully he has uh, already heard quite a bit about what might come out in that strategic concept. But what we wanted to discuss, uh, we last week, as you know, we discussed Turkey's position on Sweden and Finland's membership. And this week we wanted to address this main, one of the main agenda items, which is the announcement regarding the NATO strategic concept. The last uh, concept, it was announced in 2010, and there has been a lot of debate on that document and how China does not future, the word doesn't even exist in that document. And then there is a commitment to a strategic dialogue with uh, Russia at the time. Uh, and NATO declares that NATO is not a threat to Russia uh, in that document in 2010. Of course, uh, much has changed since then. Uh, for the past two years, NATO has been mentioning uh, China. Um, last year's uh, communique from Brussels summit uh, included China among many other uh, new challenges that the NATO alliance is faced with, including cyber um, migration, climate change, among others. So, uh, we can probably guess that the strategic concept will address many of these issues, but we would like to discuss <clears throat> what kind of, uh, um, what it should include and how uh, the emphasis on various subjects will influence the future of NATO because this document is supposed to serve as the guiding document until uh, 2030 for the next decade. Uh, so without further ado, I want to start with Professor Kupchan. Uh, Charlie, uh, could you tell us what, from an American perspective, what do you think um, we should expect from this document that will be announced this week? As you know, just today, General Secretary of NATO, Stoltenberg, uh, he announced that the um, NATO response force will, will increase from 40,000 uh, to well over 300,000. That's a huge increase. What do you think the goal might be there? And then what are the things that you think should be addressed in this document? Thank you. Thank you, Kadir. Good to join you and, and good to, to share the, the platform with, uh, with Mustafa. Um, I think there are probably three big baskets when it comes to 
sketching out NATO's agenda uh, moving forward. One of them, and this is the issue that will dominate the summit, is the return of a traditional agenda to European security. Uh, and by that, I mean NATO is back in business as a collective defense organization whose top priority, at least for now, is defending the democracies of Europe against Russia. Uh, and that's really new because since the end of the Cold War, NATO has been doing lots of things, but not really focusing on collective defense against Russia. I think it's safe to say that even after 2014, when Russia annexed illegally Crimea and intervened in Donbass, there wasn't an acute sense of a Russian threat. There was concern about what Russia had done. There was a decision to deploy what was called an enhanced forward presence to the three Baltic countries and to Poland. These were relatively small forces, around 1,500, handled by different groups of, of uh, NATO members. The United States began to invest more in European defense. But I think it's safe to say that NATO was not animated and focused on its traditional mission of, of defense against Russia. Moving forward, it will be. And you mentioned, Kadir, the increase in the force uh, strength of uh, the readiness group uh, to go from 40,000 to several hundred thousand, that's a big deal. I think we're likely to see a major uh, presence of US troops on the ground. I guess the force levels have almost doubled since the Ukraine war began. I don't think those forces are going to leave anytime soon. So we're really seeing the reinforcement of NATO's eastern flank. We are seeing more forces getting ready for potential action in Europe. Uh, I'm not someone who believes that the war in Ukraine is about to spill over to NATO territory, but it is a risk that certainly cannot be discounted, whether because of a an accident in Ukraine or Russia decided to take a strike against arms that are coming in from Poland. We now see new tensions in Lithuania over the enforcement of sanctions. Uh, who knows what the Russians might do vis-a-vis uh, -vis Lithuania and access to, to Kaliningrad. So one big theme is returning NATO to its traditional agenda and restructuring the alliance, its forces, its readiness, its capability to reflect that new priority. The second issue is China. And it's clear that NATO has been edging over the last few years toward greater focus on China. I think here in the United States, the current view is that Russia mo poses the most imminent threat to Atlantic security, but that China poses the more significant threat over the long term, simply because of its growing capability, both economic and military, as well as its technological sophistication. What role NATO plays in the Asia Pacific remains to be determined. 
Um, I don't expect to see NATO go global. I do not expect to see NATO start deploying forces to Japan or South Korea. On the other hand, there is a lot that can be done to help coordinate U.S.-European approaches to China on strategic issues, on technological issues, on trade issues. Um, I think you'll see more NATO members showing up in the Asia-Pacific, not as part of a NATO task force, but as allies interested in increasing their naval presence in the Western Pacific. So this is, this is an issue that will grow more important over time, and I do expect the strategic concept to put some flesh on the bones in terms of the role that the Atlantic partners can play in dealing with the rise of China, which is going to change the 21st century. It, you know, we haven't seen a, a significant shift in the structure of the, uh, the system of, of international politics really since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the rise of China is a game changer. The third issue that I think needs to be touched on is how to handle what is, what is clearly a, an increasingly complex and interconnected security agenda. You know, even though the war in Ukraine constitutes a traditional threat, military force, tanks, missiles, it's very clear that this traditional invasion, a ground invasion, a land grab, has impacts across different issue areas. It affects energy security. Energy security affects the climate agenda. We're looking at huge impact on migration, not just because of Ukrainians flowing out, but we might see further knock-on migration effects because of food shortages. In other words, the war is having a direct impact on the food supply. So everything is connected to everything. Obviously, the cyber issue, the digital governance issue, uh, and I'll be interested to see how the strategic concept grapples with the ever more diverse and ever more complex security agenda. Let me uh, end, Kadir, just with a couple reflections on what I the, uh, the, the tougher issues. You know, one you've already talked about last week, and that is Swedish and Finnish accession. I, I'm someone who believe that believes that the this is uh, an issue that will be resolved. Uh, I, I think the Turkish objection is slowing but not blocking uh, this issue, and so it, uh, I, I think that over time this this issue will pass. The other issue that I find of of, of the utmost concern, and we'll be interested to see how NATO grapples with it, the G7 has at least begun to scratch the surface, is the political and economic knock-on effects of the war in Ukraine, the increasing inflation, the prospect of food shortages, gas prices here in the United States, food prices here in the United States, the impact of migration on European politics, I think we need to pay increasing attention to how the war in Ukraine is affecting domestic politics in our societies, because I think this is uh, a, a, an issue of growing concern 
Unity has so far been very impressive within NATO across the Atlantic. I do think we have to ask how long is that unity going to last as food prices and gas prices go up and as Europeans and Germans could potentially face as the cold weather sets in gas rationing, gas shortages, German industry not getting the energy that it might need. Managing the domestic politics of the war in Ukraine strikes me as an increasingly urgent issue. Uh, I will stop there. Thank you, Charles. Uh, Professor Kibalrolo, please, uh, floor is yours. Uh, feel free to respond to some of what uh, uh, Charlie already said, or, uh, but I, I would like you to also give us a overall framework of what you think we should expect and what this document should cover. Uh, thank you very much, Kadir. I'm, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be uh, back to this screen. Uh, I always find CEDA's um, you know, uh, panels very useful. And uh, not only because I'm attending, but also because I have the you know, opportunity to, to listen to really wise people speaking like Charles Kupchan. And it's a great pleasure to see him again after some 20 years. Uh, that was back in Georgetown Leadership Seminar back in March 2002, where we met and we, he had addressed the uh, in the audience uh, and raised a lot of points about the forthcoming sort of uh, conjunctural developments. And he was right on many points as he is right now. And I agree on, uh, on a number of issues that he raised. He drew up a large picture, big frame within which we can uh, really uh, pick anyone and discuss for hours uh, on every account. Well, uh, of course, uh, uh, this uh, number, 300,000 troops to be deployed uh, on, uh, in, in Europe, um, which uh, will, you know, uh, shaken the very foundations of the existing, uh, if any left order, you know, international order, especially this part of the world, because things have changed quite rapidly, even after 2014, as Charles also mentioned, uh, after the illegal annexation of Crimea. Well, you know, people's expectations were like, you know, things gonna be right after some time and they'll be put back on track and some middle ways could be found. But I believe uh, things are not getting any better and you know, getting worse and we don't know till when and how worse, uh, you know, what kind of uh, situations we will be seeing in the coming months and, and years, if not decades, because uh, this uh, current situation, and, and there's a very tragic incident that took place today that was, you know, you know missile fired, uh, you know, on, uh, in a shopping center in, in Kiev or Ukraine somewhere. So uh, I couldn't catch the news late because I was just arriving in Madrid. Um, well, Jens um, Stoltenberg, uh, you know, uh, from Norway, and he was always known as, and at least presented and perceived as uh, a person who, you know, who was a cool-headed person making a balanced statements. And, and when there was some, you know, inflammation in the international, you know, affairs and some developments, he was you know, making statements to you know, bring uh, the situation back to normal. But over the past several months, especially since the you know, uh, start of the war or invasion of Ukraine, 
uh, by Russia, uh, you know, uh, the NATO Secretary General is one the first and foremost person making uh, such statements that really uh, diminishes uh, diminish hopes of uh, people like myself at least that you know a middle way can be found between Russia and the West because um, you know from what Charles also mentioned and everybody knows uh, all the you know direct and uh, in, in, indirect consequence of what is happening on everything, every aspect of life and everywhere, not only just this part of the world. Uh, so therefore, we were expecting the parties, uh, you know, uh, taking such measures or not, you know, taking some steps that would further exacerbate tension. The situation like, like that, and I don't know, uh, what is it that really is in the minds of the policymakers uh, in, in pouring so many you know, tens of, or, or hundreds of thousands of troops and putting so many boots on the ground. And are we going to, uh, you know, a war? Uh, and are we going to see battlefields where NATO troops will be uh, in, involved or engaged? You know, why is it that in this many uh, troops are being, you know, uh, transferred to, to the continent or from within the continent, not only from U US and Canada, and also from Germany and other countries that are contributing and are going to contribute to the formation of this many uh, troops on the ground. So I believe uh, we should not forget the fact that, I mean, there are many, many other issues. Of course, the tragedy aside, I mean, you know, human tragedy and economic consequences, consequences for energy situation, everything. But there are also other international political issues that requires close cooperation and coordination between West and Russia in particular, such as the international uh, security regime, such as arms control regimes, disarmament regimes, nuclear non-proliferation regime, just it's you know, around the corner, the MPT review conference, which was uh, postponed several times because of the pandemic and this August, uh, you know, it will take place hopefully. And there, there will be no possibility uh, of finding uh, a middle ground or uh, publishing a final communique, a final document uh, on which you know uh, both parties and, and and all the participating states could you know uh, feel like you know the future of nuclear non-proliferation regime is not bleak as many people you know argue these days because of the failure in 2015, the, the previous you know uh, review conference. Um, uh, you know if there is another failure coming. In this computer review conference, people's faith in the nuclear non-proliferation regime will be deteriorated, will be diminished, and you know many countries may choose to go the, you know uh, their own uh, way to and to you know uh, pursue nuclear weapons. And a world with more nuclear weapons state, with nuclear weapons capable state, at least, will not be a you know safer place. So Russia's contribution collaboration is therefore required and. Of course, I'm not saying that United States and Western alliance should yield to the you know, Russian you know, threatening statements or should accept or agree with what they do in Ukraine. This is not the case, but I don't see the logic behind you know, pouring 300,000 troops on the ground as if this is gonna be a conventional war between West and Russia. We should not forget the fact that Russia has more than 6,000 nuclear weapons, many of which, like 4,000 of which 
are you know deployed and you know actionable. So there is also this issue of international terrorism, and especially when uh, this you know uh, the Warsaw Pact collapse and the Soviet Union dissolved, everybody asked why NATO survives. I mean, why is it that NATO still is around? And you know, like Charles also mentioned at the beginning, NATO was established to protect the Western lifestyle. You know, Western lifestyle means you know individual democracies, individual liberties. Uh, you know, democratic regimes, open market economies. And back then, you know, uh, the Soviet Union was threatening these, these values of the West. Uh, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was regional uh, sort of uh, uh, disagreements and, and, and some uh, regional affairs as well as international terrorism. And NATO has transformed itself from a area defense organization to a collective security organization at the global scale. And, you know, with high mobility, higher power, a firepower, and um, much more, uh, you know, you know, sophisticated intelligence capabilities and everything. And you know, it, the fight against international terrorism was at the forefront of everything else. But we seem to, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the image that I, that I get from the statements being made, uh, from the concentration of topics, and also, you know, issues that have been mentioned as you know, they are going to be raised uh, during the you know, two or three day you know, uh, summit uh, with respect to the um, you know, next uh, strategy concept. As if it's as if international terrorism is not so you know, highly regarded, which I, I, I'm afraid you know, we may really uh, regret thinking that way if this is the case. So I believe the concept should of course pay attention to Russian atrocities Russian threatening uh, statement, Russian you know, uh, invasion, or uh, the, the, you know, what they may have Russian ambitions with respect to the future regarding the Eurasian landscape, or maybe even the entire Western Europe as well. But on the other hand, you know, NATO uh, leaders should not forget the fact that it's not all about Russia and Ukraine. I mean, of course, uh, Ukrainian tragedy being the most important issue, but all other issues are if not equally, but at least uh, uh, gradually uh, quite important. So I would like to underline this issue at the beginning. Okay, thank you both of you for your initial remarks and uh, providing such extensive uh, sort of framework uh, for our audience. I wanna ask you, Charles, so when we look at the 2010 document, there's no mention of China, there is uh, a dialogue uh, reference to, to dialogue with Russia, there is, you know, um, the affirmation that you know NATO is not a threat to Russia. And when we get to today, we are seeing very different priorities. Like you said, collective defense against Russia has become, a, you know, a major uh, item here. And then Professor Kivarolu, you know, uh, kind of criticized the three hundred thousand, uh, you know troop presence uh, throughout NATO countries, especially uh, near Russia in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, I, I would bet that, you know, most of the forces are going to be uh, along the along the sort of west of uh, Russian border. And also Poland, Poland probably will post. Yeah, Poland. Uh, so do you, do you, what, uh, from what we've talked about so far, what 
issues do you think have the staying power for NATO that they should really focus on uh, for the medium and long term? And what issues do you think uh, they might be overreacting? Like, let's say, you know, Ukraine war is critically important for European security, but this 300K um, force structure, uh, do you think that's uh, appropriate, adequate? Will it uh, kind of deter Russia? Because for Russia to be deterred by NATO, I think it may not be the conventional forces, but more the nuclear uh, capabilities that Professor Kibarolo discussed. Uh, what do you think? Well, just to 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 clarify, the you know that the number that Stoltenberg is putting out there of you know three hundred thousand or what, we don't know exactly where it will land. These are forces that would be at higher states of readiness that they would be uh, able to deploy. Uh, we're not looking at NATO actually deploying those kinds of numbers to the eastern flank. In fact, my expectation is that the numbers will remain limited and that the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which was signed in 1997, that prohibited the permanent station, stationing of large combat troops in the new members, I'm guessing that that founding act will not be torn up at the Madrid summit. Let's, let's wait and see. But the, the forces that NATO has actually deployed to the eastern flank have been relatively limited. They will increase. But what Stoltenberg was talking about was the, the rapid reaction force, forces that would be able to deploy if, for example, the Russians were to attempt, attempt something like a military operation in, in the Baltic region. I do think, however, that uh, a lot remains to be seen. Uh, we don't know where the Ukraine war is going. We don't know when uh, the fighting will end and there may be some ceasefire talk and maybe follow on diplomacy. We don't know how far the Russians will seek to go, right? It's possible that they will attempt to seize control of Luhansk and Donetsk and keep the areas they've taken in the south and stop. It's possible that they will try to move on to Odessa. Maybe they'll go back to the original plan, which seemed to have been to topple the regime in Kiev. So where this war goes and, and how ambitious Russia's war aims are will, in my mind, be an indicator of how far NATO goes to increase its capability to defend against Russia and to deter Russia. But I think that Mustafa made a, an important point, and that is that we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We cannot base, we cannot just write off Russia. We need to continue the conversation about arms control, about energy, about climate, about China, there are, you know, there, there are lots of issues that will remain on, on the agenda uh, that, that will require trying to salvage a relationship of some sort with Russia. Uh, and that's why my personal view is that NATO should try sooner rather than later to pivot in the war toward diplomacy.
and to marry its armament of Ukraine with a diplomatic strategy aimed at bringing this war to an end. Because the, the war is, is causing an enormous amount of destruction. The risks of escalation go up as the war continues. We desperately need to get Ukrainian grain onto international markets, onto the tables of people in Africa and elsewhere that are facing significant food shortages. So we're still very much in the, in the uncertain phase of, of this war. No question in my mind that NATO will take important <clears throat> steps to bolster its Eastern flank. How far down that road it goes, whether it actually decides to abrogate the NATO-Russia founding act. Let's see what happens in Madrid. Thank you, Charles. Just a quick follow-up then. Um, so um, you're saying, uh, you know, NATO is has been able to, uh, unable to deter Russia in Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO country. And this process, you suggested that we should try to move to diplomatic uh, phase uh, sooner rather than later, but we don't see much of an indication uh, on that uh, front, uh, especially the U.S. policy has is now more or less, uh, as long as Ukraine wants to fight, we will support them. Um, and those can be reconciled to some extent, but from the NATO perspective, right, individual countries supported Ukraine, but do you think in this strategic concept they could design some sort of new approach that would deter Russia or others from, you know, some doing something in in non-NATO countries that that are near NATO? Does that make sense? Like, no, uh, maybe no more Ukraine in the future. Is that even possible from from the NATO's perspective? Well. You know, I, I agree with you that at least for now, the Biden administration is saying it's up to the Ukrainians. We'll arm them for as long as they want to fight. On the other hand, as, as you both know, Turkey, Germany, France, Italy, other members of NATO are, are floating ideas that are at least oriented toward opening up some kind of diplomatic dialogue and having not just a strategy of armament, but a strategy of diplomacy to go with it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have a good sense as to where that debate is across the Atlantic. I do think that maintaining transatlantic unity is essential. It is the strongest suit of NATO. It's not the high Mars, it's not the artillery, it is the unity that the US and its allies have shown in standing up to, to Russia. And I think the deterrent effect has been quite impressive. The, you know, the Russians have been pushed back. They have been rebuffed from their initial war aims. They are suffering very significant pain economically. They just defaulted on a loan payment for the first time in 100 years. They are facing the likely prospect of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So I think the deterrent uh, effect has, has been quite strong. 
and and I think other other countries are 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 watching this carefully. But again, I think we're at a we're at a at a, a fluid moment, and I do think that over time, because of the domestic economic effects of the war, pressure will grow to marry the strategy of armament with a strategy of diplomacy. Thank you. I was referring to deterrence in the case of uh, Ukraine, stopping Russia in Ukraine, but you're right. If uh, Russia hasn't been able to expand, if anything, it, it had to you know, reduce actually the area that it was uh, initially uh, setting out to conquer. Uh, Professor Kibaro. Yeah. Just one, one quick sentence to follow, because you did ask about the sort of gray zone countries, countries that are not in NATO. And we see, I think, the outlines of a strategy that could involve neutrality, security assurances from the West and EU membership. That appears to be the path that Ukraine might be heading in. Thank you. Professor Kibarolo. A uh, similar question to you, um, you know, what can NATO really do uh, in terms of in terms of collective defense within NATO? It's relatively uh, straightforward, I guess, uh, reaffirming the Article 5, uh, reaffirming unity, deploying uh, forces uh, for, into NATO countries, strengthening their capabilities. That's relatively straightforward. The levels could be up to debate, but uh, like I was asking earlier, what can NATO do about gray zone countries as, as Professor Kupchan described? What do you think? Well, um, actually, of course, uh, NATO's uh, mission is uh, um, defending the NATO territory. But of course, uh, defending NATO territory does not necessarily mean only defending territory per se. If the threat is nearby, of course, uh, just like uh, you know, for any other country, whenever you speak with, you talk with the strategist, defense starts from uh, you know abroad, from afar. It's not just the you know immediate border. Uh, therefore, uh, it's quite understandable as to why NATO has displayed not only now in the past as well, you know, uh, developing partnership for peace operations and you know gulf cooperation you know in you know, cooperation with gulf countries you know australia in new zealand and almost everywhere there was this global partnership and of course with um, you know at the back of minds of the strategies NATO planners uh, one of the issues was international terrorism just like i you know uh, mentioned previously but um of course, when it comes to real fighting or the heat of the fighting, you know, as it gets closer, every country will start, you know, thinking in terms of its own national interest. And if there's going to be, if the gray zone turns out to be a hub, you know, a confrontation zone, of course, countries, you know, rhetorical statements uh, might change from, you know, uh, you know, sending messages or some, you know, uh, general words to more specific. Uh, statements that might, you know, distinguish their position from their previous positions as to where they were, you know, uh, looking like supporting, uh, you know, NATO's uh, overall attitude. That is the case today. So um, when it comes to, uh, you know, whether Russia 
uh, has been successful or whether it's a failure. Um, you know, I would like to say something that I've been thinking for a while because, um, you know, I think when, you know, just before the war started on 24th of February this year, I was thinking that Russia could hold its position. I mean, you know, there was this talk about 127,000 troops right across the border in Donbass area. And that, you know, they were, you know, many people thought they could stay there forever almost because, you know, it's their own, it's their homeland. I mean, in the Russian territory, I mean, and they could, you know, support and logistical support, provide everything they need. And I was not expecting Putin to really move in and start the war. And I, you know, either he made a strategic mistake or we did made a strategic mistake in terms of thinking that, you know, Putin would not go in uh, in such a short notice, but he did. And then he, he learned a lesson. Now what he's doing is, you know, he's uh, uh, almost uh, strengthening its positions and may, making some sort of uh, reorganization uh, and thinking over uh, the situation and maybe changes in the ranks of the generals and all the other staff officers. And uh, he feels like he's, uh, he has the upper hand because he, Russia is now controlling more, much more Ukrainian territory before the beginning of the war. And uh, with, with the you know, uh, beginning of the war, uh, now Russian, uh, Ukrainian territory is under Russian control without a fight these days. My, I mean, uh, literally there is no active fight as it has been the case over the past couple of months. So I think Putin might be acting now as in the way that I was expecting him to act. I mean, to stand still for a long while and you know, turn this into some sort of a nerve war. I mean, to, I mean who is more passionate? Who is more uh, sort of calm? Who, is, who can control uh, you know, his uh, you know, passion? And look at what the West is going to do and then at some point when he thinks uh, that you know, it's, the, it's the right time, might you know, uh, escalate the confrontation or the, the operations again. So uh, this means such acts like you know, sending in troops 300,000 or making them ready to be sent over to, the, you know, um, to some of the countries, to the uh, Europe, Western European territory, actually doesn't make too much a difference in terms of perceptions because Put yourself in the shoes of a you know, Russian strategist, uh, and how would you read this message? Three hundred thousand K, whether they are in their home countries, uh, to be readily deployed or, or quickly deployed over overseas or just uh, over several hundred kilometers away from their homes, or whether they are now on the terrain. So it doesn't make too much a difference from the Russian perspective in terms of reading the West's interest. So therefore. I think uh, it is like Charles also mentioned, we have to marry these strategies with diplomacy. There's, it's too late. I mean, it's already too late. And, and, and every step we make, uh, I mean, the West makes in terms of you know, uh, escalating this uh, troop presence and military operations will make it much, much harder to come back to positions where there might be some middle ground. And, and, and because we have the whole world must turn back to the arms control agenda, disarmament agenda, international terrorism, fighting international terrorism agenda, 
things like that are of equal, if, if not more important you know, for, for uh, the security of the whole world, not just one region. Thank you, Professor Kivarol. Um, Charlie, if you don't have anything else to add to this, I wanna turn to your earlier discussion about China. Um, so NATO, um, in terms of collective defense, now Russia is the main thing, but I guess on the level of aspirations and perhaps a bit more from the American perspective, China is the emerging threat in its capabilities, uh, you know, technology and military capabilities and et cetera. Uh, but it's, it's China dealing with China is going to require NATO to, to be active or, or have initiatives beyond uh, Europe, continental Europe. Uh, perhaps Sweden and Finland's inclusion could uh, open up a new territory of competition in the Arctic, perhaps, that could have implications for China. But beyond that, we've seen in the past NATO operations in Afghanistan, today in Iraq, uh, you know, outside Europe, there have been operations, but they've been rather limited. So when it comes to China, you said it earlier, we're not going to send troops to NATO troops to uh, South China Sea. You don't see that happening anytime soon. How do you think then NATO, by talking about China, addressing the China challenge, what are the things that NATO can offer on that uh, front uh, or, or what it can try to do? Well, I mean, I think we have to be mindful of the degree to which the war in Ukraine is distracting from a US strategy that probably would have otherwise been focused much more on China. Uh, and that the, I, you know, the, the war in Ukraine is not canceling the so-called pivot to Asia, but it's certainly slowing it down. Uh, and that's because more US troops, aircraft, ships, are flowing to Europe that might otherwise have been flowing to the Asia Pacific. And if you just think about the time and the energy uh, that the Biden administration is deploying to deal with the war in Ukraine, that's time and energy that at least for now is not being spent focused on, on China. Uh, but I do think that there will be uh, a, 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 you know, a continuing desire by the United States and, and among Europeans to, to focus more on China. So here are just a few ideas to, to put out there. One is, I think it's important for NATO to capitalize on the readiness of its European members to spend more on defense, right? The decision by Germany to put 100 billion euros into its military and to meet the 2% of GDP NATO benchmark, that's a big deal. Uh, and I do think that over time, there must be a stronger European pillar. Not because the United States is going to leave Europe and head off to the Asia Pacific, but because this will enable uh, Europe to shoulder more responsibility as the United States picks up more burdens in, in other regions. Secondly, I, you know, NATO has developed very important partnership activities. And to the best of my knowledge, I haven't checked 
in the last few days, but I believe that South Korea and Japan and Australia and New Zealand will be at the NATO summit as observers. Uh, and that that's a sign that you know NATO is going to play a role in training and sharing best practices. Uh, maybe what we'll see is something that that I, I you know I'm not expecting a an Asian NATO. I'm not expecting that suddenly you're going to see a counter uh, China alliance emerge, but I do think that NATO can can share lessons with countries in the region that are dealing with uh, with China. And then and even though I don't expect to see a NATO mission deployed to the region on other issues, cybersecurity, how to respond to belt and road, how much Chinese mm -hmm. investment should we allow in our countries? What about the repatriation of supply lines in sensitive areas? These are the kinds of area uh, of issues where I think NATO can play an important role as a consultative body in aligning U.S. and European policies on China. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, those are quite specific and 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 odd. Um, on 5G, the United States tried to convince European partners, mostly successfully, I believe, um, to, to refuse sort of Chinese uh, investment uh, in Europe. Uh, there have been other uh, successful stories like that. Uh, but I guess what you're imagining is when it comes to sort of conventional defense, uh, they would need to rely on or help uh, regional, uh, like the Quad, uh, you mentioned regional organizations, perhaps. Professor Kibarolo, uh, what, how do you see that uh, China angle for NATO? Yeah, as you said, Kader, there was no, not a single word about in China back in 2010 strategic concept, but only a couple of years ago that China has been put on the text in the final document uh, after the uh, 2018, I guess. Uh, summit meetings. And uh, well, and behind that, I believe uh, the you know, important factor that you know, you know, made China fe feature on NATO's final documents was uh, the US uh, perception of China. And because there is this talk of pivot to China for quite a number of years, and uh, there is this talk as to whether China should be the most important topic for the US interest. Although this military dimension is not as worrisome as you know the case with Russia and other places or international terrorism, and uh, the of course China has there's this unpreventable rise of China to 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 the to the very top on every account from you know financial economic issues to military technological issues almost everything, and uh, well if if uh, regional security issues or cultural security issues or hard security issues are behind the uh, Russian uh, behaviors, Russian moves and, and, and opting to, uh, you know, or, um, you know, preferring some hard power in instruments in solving or trying to solve its problems, such as the case in Ukraine. You know, we know that Russia 
has objective for, for decades to uh, Ukraine's uh, uh, NATO, potential NATO membership, as was the case with Georgia. And we have seen back in 2008, a short-lived war, in, uh, you know, a Russian war uh, to, towards in Georgia. And, you know, this time in Russia acted with, you know, some security considerations. But when it comes to China, my reading of China is not that you know China is being motivated with hard security issues or not meet you know military issues are not necessarily the number one you know uh, factors behind uh, you know what kind of you know foreign policy uh, you know decisions they are taking. In my personal opinion, the number one issue is feeding its 1.5 billion people. China's leaders number one issue from my perspective is to feed their own people uh, starting from the 60s and 70s you know uh, buying or renting lands or uh, developing good relations with countries long overseas in latin america in africa for organic you know agricultural you know business or you know and, and this belt and road you know it's all economic and you know uh, keeping the you know, highways of economic you know, and, and commercial activities open so as to, you know, uh, get money, currency in order to buy whatever, you know, products are necessary for his, his own people. You know, Chinese leaders are, in my opinion, are motivated by these factors rather than, you know, uh, you know uh, controlling more territories for the sake of controlling some strategic hot posts. So therefore, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. um, if we raise the stakes uh, in the military domain with China, China is equally, if not, of course, as much as powerful as Russia or United States, there are still a nuclear power and strategic nuclear weapons that they have. And they have also other capabilities, especially the Navy, which can be, which is not matched with the uh, decreasing or diminishing US Navy over the past couple of decades. So therefore, instead of pushing Meter issues on in this direction as well. I mean, I think uh, trying to understand and how in, and try to find ways as to how to mitigate the fears of Chinese leaders in terms of how to feed their own people and how to you know uh, construct an economic you know world order that, that would serve China's interests and so they could diminish their tension and their sort of uh, concerns and maybe in find more uh, peaceful relations. Otherwise, if more um, you know, military issues, if, if they are pushed more, I think China can take all the uh, measures, especially with its navies. And we, we know there is this AUKUS thing in between UK, US and Australia, and they are going to sell nuclear submarines to Australia, which can stand uh, you know, uh, some sort of a deterrence capability towards and you know uh, Chinese uh, uh, overseas presence in the South China Sea and and the, and the Pacific, but these are not things that can help. But if it comes to real uh, military confrontation, we, we we still should bear in mind that we are talking about countries that have quite a number of nuclear weapons, almost each of which are tens or if not hundreds of times more powerful than you know Hiroshima bombs. So therefore, these are serious issues. And let us not forget, this might be the last word, maybe time is getting short. I mean, wars are not broken out uh, just 
but intentionally. There is this misunderstanding, uh, inadvertent activities or technical failures. So, I mean, if we push to the, towards the edge, uh, the probability of making a mistake or misunderstanding will increase. And uh, I don't even want to think about the possible consequences, horrible consequences that might take place after you know, people might say, oops, what kind of mistake we did, but it's too late. Thank you, Professor Kibarolo. I'll just make a comment, but I want to, you're free to respond to it at the end if you like. But uh, I guess the Russian example using the nuclear sort of kit capacity to uh, to uh, for the benefit of its sort of conventional um, aims right in the case of Ukraine that we have seen that that's possible so in in many you're saying that conventional capabilities at the end of the day uh, become meaningless if you're a nuclear power right that's true in the case of China as well but then we have Putin in very much uh, sort of um, in a in a way he he used that advantage uh, to to enter ukraine perhaps uh, that could be an example for taiwan i won't let you respond to that because we are running out of time but at the end if you want to say a sentence that's fine i want to quickly uh, ask charlie uh, there's a question from the audience about china uh, acquiring dna data of western citizens and uh, that what can sort of NATO do about anything about that? Uh, can NATO do anything about that? And then I'll very quick answer if you if you can, and then I'll ask my final questions to both of you. Sure, just a just a quick comment on that. You know, China is is sort of developing facial recognition technology and other kinds of biometric technologies that are creating a surveillance state and they are selling those technologies to others. Uh, and I think it, it is important that the US, its European allies and others take steps to, to prevent heading down that road. But there's also the flip side. And in some ways, I think it's a more important flip side. And that is we need to be able to compete with China across the board on quantum computing, on AI. Uh, and therefore, I think one of the conversations we should be having in NATO, and it may not be the right forum, but it's certainly some kind of transatlantic conversation, is how can we make sure our societies outperform autocracies? And that may require good, smart investments in the tech sector, in R&D, and getting broadband internet into new parts of the country. Biden, Biden, in my mind, was on the right track when he spent so much time and energy on this issue. We need to make sure that that conversation continues across the Atlantic in a coordinated way. Okay, I wanna pose you my last question. Something a bit more practical, you've been in the government these documents, strategic uh, documents, framework documents, how important are they on day-to-day -day, uh, running of government business? Do, do, do documents have to somehow go back and refer to them? And then how do you take guidance from these documents? How important are they, do you think? Uh, interesting question, Kadir. And you, know, you could say the same thing about 
the U.S. national security strategy or a British white paper, uh, I would say that they they do matter. And they one of the ways that they matter is that they force organizations to clarify their thinking. Uh, and the near production of NATO 2030 is getting NATO officials, the international secretariat, the people that work there, the general secretary and others to confront tough issues and to answer them in a way that they can that they can write down. To put it differently, these exercises clarify the mind. Mm-hmm. Now, can we read the strategic concept and find out everything that we need to know about NATO for the next 10 years? No, right? And that's because the world is a messy place. <clears throat> Had this strategic concept come out six months ago, right? We wouldn't have even mentioned Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And the Ukraine war is, is, is completely changing NATO. So it's an important document in that it clarifies the mind, it provides strategic direction, but who knows, who knows what other events could, could change NATO's direction, just like 9-11 did. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, I'm going to give the last word to Professor Kibarolu on the same question, uh, as well as anything else you would like to address, please. Uh, thank you, Carter, for, for this opportunity. Um, well, of course, uh, such uh, documents, uh, framework um, you know, documents are sort of showing the way, are, are, are expressions of the will, general will, and the intentions. And they put uh, this you know, uh, on, the, you know, on the table some set of principles, norms, rules, and how to you know, take decisions. But they also leave some uh, leeway, some, some, some openings whereby if you know, it doesn't fit uh, the expectations of the administrations, they can you know, get away with it and not to necessarily um, you know, bind themselves with the you know, uh, stringence of these documents. Even look at Article 5. NATO Article 5, it's, you know, no matter whom ask, whom you ask this question, uh, everybody, if they don't know nothing about NATO, they know Article 5. And when you read Article 5, you can see actually how weak it is, because the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America, I'm reading it, shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them in exercise of the right of individual collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of UN will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with individually or in concert with the other parties, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force. So it talks about assisting the country if it deems necessary and if it, inc- it might include use of armed force. I mean, from the outset, from, from outside, Article 5 is like, you know, one attack on one against, uh, it's, it's an attack against all, but it's when you read the text, it's not that powerful. And it gives the opportunity to some states to really, you know, uh, back down and, and not necessarily be, you know, uh, on the ground for contribution. It's not a triggering triggering yeah. item in many yeah. ways. So therefore, uh, administrations may say, well, this fits my expectations. 
I agree with the text, but five years later, they might say, well, I disagree with this part, I disagree with this clause, and then it's all out of the window. Well, uh, let's hope I, I, every document NATO uh, members keep uh, affirming that and President Trump had uh, chosen not to, uh, and that was a big deal in the US context. Uh, but I don't think we have a lot of time to discuss that today. Maybe in the future, we'll continue to discuss um, NATO issues. And I wanna once again, thank both Professor Kupchan uh, and Professor Kibarolu to join me today discussing NATO's strategic concept that is about to be released uh, in Madrid, Spain during the NATO summit. Uh, I want to thank our participants on Zoom and social media. Uh, thanks for following us. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, thanks for I'll inviting you me. Good to time. see you all. Thank you, Padir. Good to see you, Mustafa. Thank Good you. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.